Just Some Podcast Media. The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled, exciting, and special episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, why is it special? Because tonight, Ben, we are going to do another fun movie review, and we picked... Well, last time we picked one of your all-time favorite movies, which I enjoyed, but tonight... We picked one of my all-time favorite movies, which you also enjoy, so it worked out. We picked the awesome Christmas-related Scrooged, the 1988 version with Bill Murray. So that's what that music is in the background. I thought maybe there was a drunk elf in the ER, but yeah, we're going to do a Christmas movie. Yes. Oh, it is that time of year, Ben. So what other time to talk about a movie faintly related to Christmas <laughs> by bringing up Scrooge. My wife and I actually got into this discussion last night when we were watching it. And I said, well, this is a Christmas movie. And she says, no, it's not. And I'm like, but it is. It is absolutely a Christmas movie, but done in such a way that I think you could, I mean, even though he talks about Christmas, so it's clearly a Christmas movie, right? Cause only Christmas movies directly quote Christmas. You know what I'm saying? Right. But I think you could watch this on a Saturday night in September and stuff like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was funny. Like, it it doesn't lose its charm. It just seems to gain it the closer you get to Christmas. I would agree with that. I'm not crazy. It's Christmas Eve. It's it's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer. We 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 smile a little easier. We 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 share a little more for a couple of hours out of the whole year. We are the people that we always hoped we would be. It's a miracle. It's really a sort of a miracle because it happens every Christmas Eve. And if you waste that miracle, you're going to burn for it. I know what I'm talking about. Just some facts on the movie in case people are not aware about it. Like you said, it is a 1988 American Christmas comedy film. stars Bill Murray, Karen Allen, John Forsythe, Bobcat Goldwaite, Carol Kane, Robert Mitchell, and Michael J. Pollard. It was released November 23rd, 1988, and it grossed over $100 million worldwide. It uh, received a positive response from test audiences, but was met with a mixed response because critics found the film to be too mean-spirited. Well, they suck. <laughs> Tom, we were talking a little bit off air, and we did. I did not give you the answer to this, but here's a little fun fact about the movie. So it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Makeup and Hairstyling, but lost what movie 
beat out Scrooged in 1988. So I know I'm going to hate myself when I miss this because I love movies. And I'm going to try and guess something that's relatively close. And, and honestly, I don't know why, but one of the Indiana Jones movies, uh, maybe Temple of Doom? Not a bad guess, but that is not correct. The correct movie was Beetlejuice. Ooh, you know, yeah. you know, <laughs> I think I, I see it. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh gosh. Yeah. No, mm, that's a toughie because I love Scrooge, but I really like Beetlejuice and I can see it. I can see both. So yeah, as much as I wanted Scrooge to win something, it's hard to argue with Beetlejuice. It, it won the heart of Tom. And I mean, that in, in and of itself is a hell of a prize. So yeah, Christmas itself, no way. The movie about Christmas, yeah, you got it. <laughs> You're too funny. Oh, my God. I mean, so many fun things. Uh, and I know we're a medical-based podcast, but I think there's some things we're going to have to discuss about this movie on the non-medical side. Like, are you, are you ready, Ben? Because I'm ready. Yeah, I mean, so- this is our special episode. We're not doing any, you know, not doing stories. Uh, we're just jumping right into the fun. So, so. Honestly, it starts at the two-minute mark. <laughs> That's how soon I was already like, now, wait a second. And this is watching with a critical eye. I, I don't do this every time I watch it, clearly. But do you know the very first opening scene is a promo for a movie? Because it's about a the, the movie itself, if you've never seen it, is about a TV executive who is the stand-in for Ebenezer Scrooge. And in this movie, it's played by Bill Murray, whose name is Frank Cross. So you're going to hear a lot of they they did a lot of really cool making fake shows that his fake broadcasting company were promoting. Yes, which I thought was pretty cool. And one of them was a holiday movie where Lee Majors, the six million dollar man, goes to the North Pole because he has to rescue the Claus family from terrorist, which already right off the bat cracked me up. I'm like, what terrorist? are taking out Santa Claus. I mean... The terrorists who hate Christmas. Well, geez, that's a pretty rough group. So he's standing there, and I saw this in a bunch of 80s movies. And when I talk about this, Ben, you and the other people out there that watched 80s movies, they're going to know what I'm talking about. Because it happened in Predator. It happened in a bunch of other movies. Some guy is going to stand there with what is a military, what they call a minigun. Are you aware of what I'm talking about when I say minigun? Yes. Yes. So for those out there that don't know, it is a six barreled weapon with it it fires so fast. It has to have a motor to turn the barrels. That's how fast it moves. And it fires up to 6,000 rounds a minute. That's a lot of bullets, Ben. That is a lot of bullets. Yes. So Not only is that whole apparatus, just the gun and the motor itself so heavy that it's mounted on helicopters and vehicles makes sense but to hold even if you fired it for 30 seconds that's three thousand rounds of ammunition of course i'm talking about the high setting there is a variable setting on most of them uh but we'll just say for argument's sake six that's three thousand bullets that a human being would have to lug around plus the gun and and i just sat there and i was like no no lee majors i don't care what's going on but 
it also kind of lends to the hilarity of the movie that a guy would have to carry such a vicious weapon to the North Pole. And my other favorite part is Santa Claus the whole time I was arguing with Lee Majors. He's like, you got to get out of here, Santa. The world needs you. He's like, this is one Santa going through the front door, Lee. And I just could not stop laughing at the absurdity of Santa Claus fighting terrorists. I just. And I've never fired a minigun before, but I'm going to assume that given its weight and being mounted on vehicles, it probably has some hellacious recoil, especially if you're shooting 3000 rounds. Uh, so maybe they just have like the uh, light recoil version. Uh, light yeah. recoil. And again, I'll get off this in a minute. Cause I know some people are going to be like, okay, I'm tired of it. But um, the noise again, that it makes in real life, I don't know how else to explain the noise, but it is more of a blur. It sounds like Satan ripping a burlap sack. I don't know how else to describe the awesomeness of these types of weapons because they make weapon. They make the same gun, but it fires a way bigger bullet and it makes obviously a lot louder sound. But in the movies, it's always like pew, 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 pew. And I'm like, no. Mm-mm. That is not what this thing sounds like. So anyways, I just thought it was funny. The absurdity of that's the type of show Frank Cross is producing that terrorists are attacking Santa Claus. And the only way for Santa Claus to get out is for him to kill everybody. So that's just, that kind of set the whole tone for the movie that that's what Frank Cross is making. Well, Tom, I just have I had an idea to make room for a commercial for one of our shows. Let's break this down into two parts. So when I initially was watching the movie for us to medically review it, I was thinking trauma, okay. similar to how we did Christmas yeah. Vacation. And there's a lot of that in this movie. There is. But so much other stuff outside of actual physical injury. Okay. So let's break it up into two parts. Well, well let's, we can look at, and I don't care which part we do first, but let's do physical injury, trauma, and let's do, and then we'll take a break. And then we'll do the mental health or we can flip flop them. I don't care either okay. way. No, that, that's fine. If I go off course, let me know. Cause I did, I did it chronologically. So like, as you're watching the movie, you could follow this along. I'll be like, Oh, here's that part. So that might be a little harder, but I'll try and jump around. You can do it. I have faith in you, Tom. Oh, it's a you are the only one. So let's, all right, let's get going. You go. What's your, what's your, well, I mean, let's, uh, I mean, if we're going to focus on trauma first, I mean, that poor sensor that must work for the network or not for the network because he runs the network, but, you know, works for uh, whatever federal organization uh, is causing these censorships. But this young lady gets the shit beat out of her numerous times. You know, she gets uh, struck in the face with the lighting fixtures. The stage collapses on her. She gets uh, hit by a barrel. Yes, rolls yes. at about ten miles an hour and probably weighs a couple hundred pounds. But at the end, I mean, she does, you know, get her uh, her just cause because you know she's able to make out with uh, the guy that she wants, albeit he's uh, tied up. And I don't know how well that would play in twenty twenty, but I mean, hey, you know, it's, well, I was, it was that is one of the things I know we talked about off the air. There, as great as the movie is, there is a lot of stuff that you look back in retrospect and you're like, wow. You know, in 1988, that was cool, but try that shit in 2020 and watch how many various groups protest the living shit out of this movie. Like, it's right. Whew, it was brutal. I don't know how else to say that. <laughs> but it was also funny seeing some of the stuff you see him talk about 
that you missed either watching it the first time when you were younger or something you're like oh god that is a whole different meaning now <laughs> that i'm an adult well okay right at the very beginning like they they do the spoof on a leave it to beaver show the wholesome classic uh probably 40s or 50s television show i'm not sure exactly what era and the kid said something about where's dad and the mom's like if there's one thing i know it's your dad loves chasing beaver and i just stopped like i was mid-drink i was like did she just say that shit like i can't like oh wow and then it, you know, ibz presents yes Father, <laughs> and that totally over the top over produced you know studio voice so yeah i i agree with you there was a lot of stuff i was like i did not see that coming before talking about trauma yes that poor sensor but let's just go right to our favorite well one of my favorite whole parts maybe favorite overall part of this whole movie is if you're if you're not familiar with the story of scrooge here it is very quickly a guy is doing bad things he's a bad person yes a ghost from his past that in the original scrooge i think he wronged in some way and the guy was trying to repay him or whatever it was but a friend comes back and says hey you're going to get a gift and it's going to be three ghosts and they're going to show you what you did wrong, what you're doing wrong and what's going to happen if you don't fix your ways. That That's the rough story of Scrooge. Yeah. yeah. And then at the end, he realizes that he's an asshole and he changes. And, and I yeah. got Christmas spirit, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. So the middle ghost is the ghost of Christmas present. <laughs> yeah. Who in this movie, and I don't, I can't think of her name. What is the actress's name? Uh, Carol King, I believe. Okay. She is a very tiny blonde woman who comes into the story and beats the ever living crap out of Bill Murray for like the next 30 minutes. I oh, mean, yeah. yeah Multiple. I mean, it, it literally starts off again. You miss it if you don't pay attention the first time you watch it. She literally is holding a card that says the ball breaker suite. <laughs> as she talks to him i'm like wow and then shortly after holding that up and her dancing around she kicks him right square in the well i mean she's the ball breaker I mean, yeah she the ball breaker yes yeah. Yeah. And, and it's hilarious even more because he's this big gruff dude and she's this tiny little girl and she talks in such a sweet voice and she's wearing a fairy costume it just proceeds to lay a sack of rocks ass whooping on this dude in various forms. So like Ben said, the very first thing she did was kick him in the genitals, which you there you go. First trauma right off the bat. Pow. Frank just got kicked in the testicles. Yes. Shortly after which she then proceeds to eye gouge him, grab him by his lip and drag him around and then kick him so hard he goes or punch him so hard in his face that he goes unconscious. Like, yeah. I'm just like, holy cow, like right off the bat. Yeah, the punch is basically how she gets him to move from scene to scene by punching him in the face or or by hitting him uh, with various objects in the scene. But, you know, you mentioned the lip thing. I was doing some research for this movie. Do you know that in real life she actually because she didn't want to hurt Bill Murray? I mean. Mm-hmm. when they were filming and he basically told her no like you need to you know you need to come at me and it'll be you know it's basically it's gonna be okay but so a lot of the slaps were real a lot of everything was very 
as close to real as they could do. And when she grabbed his lip during filming, she actually ripped his frenulum and they had to pause filming for like three days for that to heal. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. I researched that. I was like, holy shit. But I mean, and and it's funny you said that because there are several times where you see her and she, cause like I said, you'd have to watch a movie. She's got this cheery voice and she's like, oh, your cheeks are so rosy. And then just whack smacks it across his face. And I'm just like, now that I know that's real, that's even funnier. And then I think that leads to Ben. I'm going to let you say it, but probably since we both repeated it several times, I know our favorite line in the entire movie. Yes. Which, uh, by the way, just you want to know, comes up exactly at the one hour and eight minute mark. See, I did not go all like timestamp on it. I'm impressed. I did. I told you, I went chronological at first. So they're at his brother's house, you know. She's trying to show him what he's missing with Christmas and they get into another little skirmish and, you know, he basically tells her, if you touch me again, I'm going to rip your goddamn wings off. Okay. Which also made me laugh uncontrollably. So she picks up a toaster, uppercuts him with it into the next scene to which he comes to and says, The bitch hit me with a toaster. The bitch hit me with a toaster. (laughs) Which is just a great line. Like, how do you not love that line? Yeah. And again, when you're listening to this, if you've never seen the movie, you're like, did he just say bitch hit me with a toaster? But again, at this point in the movie, Frank, who's Mr. Tough Guy, just got his ass waxed by some tiny little chick with this shiny silver toaster because... In no other uncertain terms, he's Mr. Boss Man, and he was trying to tell her what they were going to do. And she's like, no, it's time to leave. And he's like, no. And so she hits him in the face with the toaster. I mean, it was just amazing. And it's still by far probably my favorite moment of the entire movie is when he's coming to and he's been hit in the face with the toaster. Yes. No, I agree. That that definitely easily top three. Uh, of my favorite lines. But you know, Tom, if you go back just a little bit into the Christmas past, I know we're jumping around a little bit, but it's our show. We can do that. (laughs) We can do that. I think there was some foreshadowing to the fact that he was going to get his ass beat by the Christmas present. Because when he meets his love interest, he falls in love with her after she hits him with the door, knocks him down, and then headbutts him, and then he gets the nickname Lumpy. Correct. That's what she calls him. So maybe there was some foreshadowing into what was going to happen in the present. Correct. I mean, I didn't think about that because that's actually what he's discussing with her as she's helping him up. He's like, I don't think you're supposed to move a person with a serious head injury. Like he is even talking about that. And then that is her nickname for him for the rest of the movie is Lumpy due to the various head injuries she gave him. So, wow, (laughs) I, I didn't consider the fact that they kind of laid out that this guy apparently likes getting his ass beat by women. I don't know, but it's what he likes. Apparently. Yeah. I was surprised he didn't fall in love with the, uh, with the ghost of Gators from the president as much as she, Oh, she, she dog shit out of him. You know, the other two ghosts don't really do anything physical to him. They show him things. 
the ghost of Christmas past. I mean, he kind of, he walks through the door and makes Frank walk into the door and, you know, he's like, I love that joke. Uh, you know, there's that. And then, and this is kind of in the realm of mental health also. And, but I want to just look at the physical aspect of it. The very intense scene with the ghost of Christmas future where he's getting burned alive. Yeah. And actually show some of that. And he's screaming. I mean, Mike, can you just, I mean, you almost imagine Oh, that. and he's trapped in a coffin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's dead. But I mean, just the the physical aspect of that would be just horrendous. Yes, and and again, like you said, there is the mental aspect, and we're going to talk. We're going to talk about it a lot because if you think about it, this movie is actually mostly a psychological movie. Like, no, no, absolutely. I I didn't even realize that the first time I watched it. Like how much this is just a play on how you view or emotionally attached to things. But yeah, no, there is both a physical and a mental reaction to the thought of being burned alive. And like when he starts kicking his feet, desperately trying to get out of that coffin, because again, it, it, the ghost of the Christmas future is trying to show him where he's going to end up. You know, if he doesn't change his ways. Yeah. And that's dying alone and in this box being burnt because no one's going to want to be around him. Yeah. I mean, he's screaming. His feet are on fire, which does not sound funny at all, which immediately leads into a funny scene, I might add. Right. But like for that few seconds, you you feel like, wow, like I how terrifying that would be to a person. And there are several moments in this. And you know what? Well, let's, let's take a break. Because uh, did you have any more trauma that you had? I had my list. I didn't see a whole lot else trauma. No, no I, I don't think actual physical trauma to the movie. I think the rest of the time is just things we want to talk about in mental health. So, okay. Well, let's take a break. And on the other side, we'll talk uh, mental health and stuff. Hey there, it's Pollyanna from Pleasure Pathways. I'm super excited to have you all jump on board with me as we go on a journey in search of buried pleasures. I can't wait to see what we can dig up. <laughs> all right, the mental health stuff, Tom, man. I, you know, I don't know that I noticed it as much when you're not looking for it, but I mean, with us looking at it with the intent of discussing it, medically like you said before the break i mean it's like a psychological movie almost i i wouldn't even say almost anymore now that i've watched it with the intent of breaking it down i feel like that's pretty much exactly what it is it seems to me that the physical trauma stuff that we talked about was more of just a gag or something to produce laughter yeah yeah like the the slapstick like you yeah. see like the the classic like chevy chase and Bill Murray, I mean, like those, yeah, John Blue. I was going to say it's different than last year's Christmas Vacation because the trauma in that was the result of what they did. You know, like the car wreck because he wasn't paying attention to the road. Like, okay, this, it seemed like, like you said, the trauma that, for example, to go back to the Ghost of Christmas Present was just to move the scene forwards. Yeah. Like if they could have found another way to do it, she didn't have to hit him in the face with the toaster, but she did. So, I mean, but even from the very beginning, again, I and I I wrote a lot of the time stamps down at the five minute mark. You are already getting a sense of the deep narcissism that is Frank Cross. 
And that is a very important part of this movie is to understand that he is a complete narcissist. Like that whole scene at the very beginning of the movie, other than the fake commercials, is him in a room full of other executives. And they have all these great promos that they're running that are already doing great. And he comes back with this over the top commercial that he is demanding to be played because he is so much better than everybody else. And I was already like, wow, this guy is a complete narcissistic asshole. <laughs> like that's it plays it well. Yeah. Yeah. At Bill Murray, I don't know who else could have played it. I, I honestly, it'd be like if you said, okay, they were going to remake Top Gun. Who's going to play Maverick? You're like, nobody. You don't do that. You can't, you know, who else is going to play Indiana Jones? Nobody. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Like, you can't do that. So, Bill Murray, awesome. Let's, <laughs> he does several things, though. Again, going back to his narcissism, he sees, you know, for instance, his valued executive assistant. She has a homemade drawing from her youngest kid up on the wall. And because <laughs> the drawing is up to his specifications, he tells her how much it's just crap, rips it up in front of her, and throws it in a trash can. I mean, you got to love this guy right from the beginning. Well, and then he uh, once the the zombie uh, shows up, which was. As a kid, that can be traumatic seeing that because, like, you know, the the mouse pops out of the, the zombie's head, um, and it's still oh, has about when his his when buddy up, yeah. comes back to tell him that the ghosts are coming. Okay, yeah, yeah, you know, like the mouse, like I said, the the mouse drops out of the guy or out of the back of the skull and then goes back in. The sight gag of you know Bill Murray shooting him several times, and then him drinking and it pouring out is just classic comedy stuff that just makes you kind of chuckle. It is, but it also serves. To further the point, though, of his hallucination, which at that point he is firmly having. Okay, so again, for those that haven't seen the movie, as been alluded to in in the original Scrooge, it's Jacob Marley in the Scrooged movie. It is the old president of the network. Lou Hayward has returned to show young Frank Cross the error of his ways with these three ghosts or he's going to end up as Lou ended up. And that's when. He starts shooting at him <laughs> because he's really seeing a dead guy in his in his office, which is a clear hallucination at that point. I mean, any false interpretation of your senses with this is is hallucination by definition. So he's seeing a dead person, even though he realistically knows he's probably not there. And it leads to all the funny stuff you were just talking about, the mouse popping out of his head and the, you know, Bacardi. As a matter of fact, the dead guy even re- references that. He's like, I don't mind you shooting me, Frank, but take it easy on the Bacardi. And then he starts drinking it as it sprinkles out of him. I mean, it's it's hilarious. But I mean, again, think about that for a second. You see your friend come back after being dead for seven years. You're probably not going to react well at all. And, you know, he initially believes he is having a hallucination and he likens it to or I guess he blames it on the Russian vodka that he's drinking, which I mean, if you want to talk about just that for a split second, the alcoholism that rages through this movie is, I mean, every bit of it's not just Frank. I mean, it's there's numerous alcohol references. Frank is drinking through a majority of the film. Bobcat Goldweight later on gets good and liquored up too. So yeah, I mean, lots of I, alcohol. I I actually even wrote that as a note at the fifty nine minute mark when the guy says, "Oh, I got to go to lunch and grab a drink." 
I was like, holy cow. Is that like what every character? Like, first of all, I want this job where I can literally just have scotch all day and people pay zero attention to it. Like, that's pretty amazing because I am sure if we went to Mexican for lunch one day and I had six margaritas when we got back, there's going to be a problem. I just feel no one's going to let that one slide. Do you get what I'm saying? So we, we obviously need to be TV executives, Ben. So that every day I can have some, but yes. So back to the joke is Frank says, your hallucination, which at least he was correct. You know, he did yeah. use the correct, correct medical term. You are a hallucination brought on by vodka poisoned by Chernobyl. And it made me think for a second, Ben, I've never dealt with acute radiation sickness. So I decided to look up what exactly the required conditions for acute radiation, or I guess uh, I said sickness, but it's acute radiation syndrome. And Ben, are you ready? Yes. All right. So. These are the required conditions by the CDC for acute radiation syndrome, and they include the radiation dose must be large, okay? So it needs to be at least 70 rads, though you can get mild symptoms for something as low as 30 rads. The dose must be external, so obviously it's coming from a radioactive source outside of the body. The radiation must be penetrating, so something like high-energy x-rays or gamma rays would be a requirement. It has to involve the entire body, so focused radiation will not generally cause any acute radiation sickness. And the dose, not only does it have to be large, Ben, it has to be delivered in a short time. So fractionated doses are often used in radiation therapy, and those aren't the ones that they are worried about. It is a extremely large dose delivered in a extremely short period of time are going to cause the injuries that are seen with acute radiation syndrome. Hmm. So those are the requirements to even get ARS. And real quick, I'm going to go over what the three outcomes of ARS are. So there's ARS with what they call bone marrow syndrome. And this has a low survival rate. Let's just step back for a second. (laughs) If you get acute radiation syndrome, you don't have a very good prognosis. Let's just start with that. Out of all of them, bone marrow syndrome, what happens is, is it causes exactly what you're assuming. Primary cause of death is the destruction of bone marrow, resulting infection and hemorrhage over time. Okay, so these patients can live for a couple months. Then there is what they call GI syndrome, and the survival rate is extremely unlikely with the syndrome, and that's word for word from the CDC. And death usually comes within less than two weeks due to infection, dehydration, and electrolyte imbalance. And the final is cardiovascular or central nervous system syndrome. Death usually occurs within three days. And this is due to a complete collapse of the circulatory system. So hmm. I guess I learned something <laughs> from, from this. I'm impressed that you went that route with it. And I was just thinking, man, that's pretty ballsy to do a Chernobyl joke like 18 months after it happened. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guess I didn't think about that because I'm thinking <laughs> 2020. You know, you're right. In 1988. Guess what, yo? Like that's I, but you know what? In Bill Murray's defense, because somebody's gonna say that is a poor joke. I doubt eighteen months after the accident, they had a full grasp of how bad it was 
due to the cover up of the Russian government and the fact that the radiation was still spreading at that point. I doubt they actually understood how bad it was. So I'll give you I'll give you that. So when Lou grabs him to try to get his attention and pushes him as he melts through the window and pushes him out the window and he's hanging there and he's screaming, you know, they'll think I'm a suicide. They'll think I'm a suicide. Cause he's, he's literally hanging out of the building. Yeah. The 40th floor. Yeah. The mental trauma that has to occur with that. I mean, could you, I mean the fear of your life ending, no one believing you and then assuming that it's a suicide and you're literally just being held I mean, I, to me, I'm just like, man, that would like suck really bad. <laughs> well, not only does it suck, and you're right about all that, but then as he is desperately clawing at this guy to try and get back through the window, and again, this doesn't sound very funny the way we're describing it, um, <laughs> even though it is a comedy, but as he's clawing at the guy trying to get back in, the guy's arm starts to break. Yeah. And the guy's just sit, standing there laughing, and I'm like, Wow. That is terrifying. So he does drop, but obviously Frank doesn't die. And just like every other time in the movie to follow this, when he goes through something traumatic, it actually just propels him forward to the next scene. Yes, that's a good point. The hallucinations carry on into the next day. He was told that he was going to get visited by the first ghost at noon. He has to go to lunch with the current. Well, he's the president, like what, the CEO? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, he's above him whatever he is and then the waiter on fire you know and again i'm i'm chuckling which doesn't sound like it would be funny but it is because he's the only know, one that sees it he's the only one who sees it he's hallucinating it that uh this waiter is lighting a baked alaska and then catches on fire and he's dancing around and frank looks like a crazy man because he's screaming at this guy and you know no one else can see that. And then he grabs a bucket of water and throws it on him and uh, moves forward. So, I mean, the hallucinations continued throughout that, that time also. Well, and that's a good point though, for a teaching aspect is so hallucinations are anything that the patient. And in this case, Frank cross is tricking one of their senses. So it's something that they, they may even realize it's not true. Like Frank keeps looking around and nobody else is moving. So you could tell Kind of that the Bill Murray character is trying to compute, like, okay, I see this guy on fire, but nobody else is helping him, and he's looking around. And and honestly, that may be something that you're dealing with with some of the your patients that may actually be having hallucinations. They may or may not even recognize, but it's tricking one of their senses: their sense of smell, their sense of touch, their sense of sight, hearing. All those things go into it. So if you're going to talk about hallucinations, know that it's that's what it is: is a focused tricking of one of the senses into believing something that you that they know isn't real or it's tricked them into believing it's real but that's what the hallucination is but like you said yeah the guy the other waiter at their table keeps trying to tell him no sir you don't want that for a meal it's baked alaskan and (laughs) bill murray just keeps screaming at him about this because he's he's going crazy trying to wait for the first ghost to show up and the first ghost does show up, and of course, like we alluded to earlier, it's the ghost of Christmas past, uh, very similar to the Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens version. It takes him back to 1955 when he was four, and 
you see the beginnings of why Frank is the way that he is mentally, um, as far as like not liking Christmas. But the thing that stuck out to me, and I mentioned it to you earlier, uh, you know, 1955 was a different time, Tom. You know, it wasn't apparently it was not a big deal to be nine months pregnant and smoking, uh, <laughs> as the mom is doing heavily. Like, yeah, like heavily smoking. But again, I guess, you know, 55 was a different time, so... I'm pretty sure, like, the doctors... I, As a matter of fact, if I remember correctly, it's a camel cigarette advertisement. Yes. And it says something like, four out of five doctors recommend camels. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, okay. That changes everything, apparently. But, uh, no, as you said, I, and I think this leads back to the psychological trauma of Frank, because he's a kid, and the mom is pregnant with his brother, which she doesn't have, so he's all alone. And dad doesn't want anything to do with him. Dad throws him his present because dad's obviously a butcher. And he says, is it a choo-choo train? And he goes, no, that's four pounds of veal, <laughs> which not a lot of four-year-olds are going to appreciate. So <laughs> the dad yells at him. He goes, well, if you want to trade, go out and get a job. The mom retorts with, but he's only four. And the dad yells about how he's tired of people making excuses, such as I'm only four. So, yeah, you're you're starting to lay some of the foundation of understanding how Frank fell in love with TV. As a matter of fact, he alludes to that because nobody else wanted to be around him. So TV yeah. never yeah. left him, which I find like really sad because how true is that for a lot of kids now? That's like, very true. So many people, whether by lack of ability to be a parent or lack of enthusiasm to be a parent, allow television to be a parent. And so that that is something, ugh, unfortunately, we see. But I mean, if you think about it, Frank Cross is a really successful individual. So maybe it's not always bad. I don't know. You're, I think you're putting way too much thought into that. <laughs> <laughs> I did like the the veal joke because it played well later. Also, when him and Claire are exchanging gifts after the, the, their first Christmas together, and she talks about how it was their Christmas tradition to open one present. On Christmas Eve, and you open the rest of Christmas morning, and she says, "What did your family do?" And he says, "Well, if it was going to spoil, we'd open on Christmas Eve." <laughs> Which plays back on the veal. <laughs> yes, or or when the ghost of Christmas past is talking to him, and he goes, "I told you you'd cry." He goes, "I'm crying because that kid was given a gift. What today would be a forty dollar cut of milk fed veal?" <laughs> it's just the whole movie is full of, of liners like that. And- Going forwards, so the Ghost of Christmas Pass is shown to him, his love interest, and he goes to chase her down. And this actually brings us to a different mental health aspect because he runs into some individuals. She works in a shelter for homeless uh, yes. and outreach. And there are several inhabitants that are coming up to Frank and they think he's someone else. Which in this case is not a hallucination. This, I, I think, tends to fall more towards the delusional. Like, they have convinced themselves that he is somebody else. They keep bugging him, calling him Dick. He's Richard Burton. Yeah. Yeah, they, right. keep, calling, they keep calling him Dick Burton. And he's yeah. like, why do you keep calling me Dick Burton? And so no matter how much he tries to convince them he's not Dick Burton, they are just dead set that he is Dick Burton. <laughs> okay? So this is where... And I'm kind of glad the movie did this because even for me, sometimes it's like, oh, it's hard to understand. What's the difference between a delusion? What's the difference between a hallucination? And a hallucination tricks your sense, okay? But a delusion 
is something that you may or may not know, but you believe no matter what evidence is in front of you. So the actual person is literally telling them, I'm not Dick Burton. And they keep calling him Dick Burton. I was like, that it seems like a definition of a delusion. So when I worked in the nursing home and years, years ago as, a, as an LPN, you know, we kind of talked about patients who have like dementia and delusions and Alzheimer's. And sometimes it's easier if you temporarily step into their reality versus trying to reorient them, you know? So like if you have an older lady who's, you know, worried because she needs to get her car fixed, needs to get her car fixed, or she needs to go somewhere, you know, sometimes it's easier to say, well, you know what, the car's in the shop, you know, we'll make sure you get it and move on with your day as opposed to yelling at her and telling her, you know, no, you're in a nursing home. This is, you know, you don't have a car. There's none of this is it's all in your head. Frank kind of does this with these, with this group of people. He just steps into the delusion and they're, they're like, just give us a few lines, give us a few lines. And so he finally just gets tired. The Hamlet, by the way. Yeah. And he he delivers the lines and they're just enthralled. And but it does, you know, stepping into the reality temporarily does allow them that moment of joy, but then they also kind of move on and don't bother him as much. I would just like to point out, however, none of what he says is actually from Hamlet. So let's just throw that out there. That's that's <laughs> They're such huge fans. Just hearing Dick Burton talk, even though it's not Dick Burton, suffices. I'm going to throw out two things, though, because the rest of the scene happens. And even though Frank has made his way back to Claire, the love of his life, he pisses her off again because she is a great person. She's working with homeless. And what happens is two staff members, and I'm going to explain the scene because I'm about to say something that's probably going to go against the grain for a second. So... Even though it's Christmas time and these people are working to help the homeless, these two other people come up and the one's like, we don't have any fuses. And Claire's like, we, we do have fuses. And the other person's like, well, they, we didn't get any of our turkeys from the store. And Claire's like, okay, well, I will talk, I'll show you where the fuses are. And then I'll show you how to call for the turkeys. And this is one of the times I actually agree with the Frank Cross character is he tells her, he's like, no, they're grown adults. Either look for the fuses or go to where the fuses are and buy some more. And then he tells that he looks at the other one. He goes, you need turkeys from an A and P. Look it up. It's under A. If it's not under A, then go to P. And I couldn't stop laughing because I find a lot of times I've seen it in nursing. I've seen it in departments. If, if the people get used to just going to, to a person and asking for help and then you do all the stuff for them, guess what? They're going to stop looking. Hmm. They're, gonna, they're not going to they're not going to try and find answers for themselves. They're going to come to you each time they need something done. And so that's what he tells Claire and she gets all pissed off at him. And I'm like, I don't want to ruin the movie, but I got to go with Frank on this one. <laughs> like they are adults. They should be able to handle finding a fuse or calling a store to say, we need the turkeys you were supposed to deliver. Like, am I wrong to think? I don't think you're wrong. I just, I had not really considered that because I mean, at that point he's still, they're still trying to make him up to be this narcissistic asshole. And he's wanting to go take her out for Chinese food right that second. And he doesn't want to wait. He's like, no, we're going right now. So I see your point, but, you are right. He wants to leave right now. And I think if she had said, no, I have to finish the things that I have been doing. And those two other people had not interrupted. 
I don't even think Frank Cross would say anything. I think he would say, okay, well, that's your job. So you go do your job. Because that's what he's literally telling those two other people in that scene. You have a job to do. Go do it. The other part that, again, I, I don't think is going to make me super popular is the scene where if you go back in time, he was working on the show. And the president of the corporation at that time, Lou Hayward, you know, the soon to be Mr. De facto Jacob Marley says, hey, let's go out for dinner. And Frank says, OK. And Claire says, but we already had plans. I, I will agree with you on this. Uh, yeah, because, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Frank went too far. And I think, again, you're 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 right. They're trying to set him up to be the narcissistic asshole he becomes, even though he's not at that point yet. But he does make a good point when she's like, but we're going to go out with our friends. And he's like, yeah, the president of the corporation just asked us out to dinner. I can't expect him to wait a month. You know, this is a good thing for me. And I my wife was in the room and tried to argue with me. She's like, but that's their friends. And they wanted to go to dinner and they had plans. And I said, I fully expect if I drove to Kansas to hang out with Ben And the governor said, hey, Ben, I want you to come up here and talk about legislation for nurse practitioners in the state of Kansas. And he said, no, my friends here from out of town, I would punch you so hard. (laughs) It's unfathomable to the people listening to understand how hard exactly I would hit you (laughs) for turning down that opportunity. I'd be like, I will be here tomorrow. Go now and have this dinner like i i would never expect somebody to give up something so spontaneous or grandiose like that's an opportunity you have to seize no i I agree with you i certainly did not make my wife happy but i 100 percent. i she said well if ben i was like if ben showed up i'd be like ben i gotta go and i will be back tomorrow you know, go to the zoo. I don't know, but I will be back. Okay. <laughs> but the point is, is I would not expect somebody to give up that opportunity for me, nor would I think anybody I know would expect me to give up that opportunity for them. I think that to an extent probably could have been okay. The way that she made it sound, I think there was probably more like that was kind of the straw that broke the back, probably more going on behind the scenes. But then the fact that he was just completely clueless to the fact that she was like, hey, we need to break up or split up or since a time apart. And he's like, well, okay, I'll see you tonight, you know, and just kind of goes on with this day like it's not a big deal. I think, again, leads that that is where it gets to that point of pushing it to a narcissistic aspect. Fair. And, and I agree with you because she does pretty much break up with him over that one incident. So I agree with you. I have a feeling that that is not the first, but obviously last, you know, situation to cause a strain on the relationship. I just, this is one of those times where I agree with the bad guy. I'm like, I could, you're an asshole. Wrong. Maybe I am an asshole, but I'm also, I don't think wrong in this case. Fair enough. Moving forward after the ass whipping that the Christmas present ghost lays on Frank cross, because one of the scenes, and I told my wife this when we were watching it last night, I'm like, this is, I can still remember this as a kid. This scene was super sad to me. And that was where the homeless guy, Herman, is down in the sewers. So when Frank left, you know, he asked for two bucks and Frank didn't give it to him. Well, he's down in the sewer. I'm assuming trying to stay warm, you know, and, and out of the snow and, and elements. 
and Frank finds him and he's frozen to death. And, you know, like he's talking to him and he touches his hand and the watch that he was holding kind of drops a little bit. And that to me just, it just resonated. And I was just, it just, it still made me sad to sit and watch that. I think it's sad. And I think it was a learning lesson for that character. And maybe for people watching the movie that didn't think about it, that there are people outside right now, cold and hungry, and they don't have anywhere else to go. Yeah. And I think that was part of what it was trying to teach him. And maybe a lesson to teach everybody watching that they, cause he had a blanket, you know, he had a blanket and he had all that stuff and it still was enough. And that there's people that are going to suffer while everybody else is rejoicing that there are people that are going hungry while we're all eating, that there are people that are freezing while we're all inside and warm. And humanity needs to be more than just that little bit, like that that few people that are willing to go out and help. So I, I think it was a great lesson to make you feel something or sit and think about, because that's what Frank starts realizing that minute. He starts to yell at the dead body, which again sounds macabre when you're saying it but it makes sense in the scene of the movie because he just found herman and even though he only met herman that one time and herman really bugged him he's yelling at herman he's like you know you're an idiot why did you you stay with claire yeah you would have had a roof over your head and you would have had food to eat but instead you suffered and now you died and i think that's when it starts to hit him claire can't do everything by herself people like him have to be part of the solution that they are proposing so i i think it's a really deep meaning it it's not something like you said i was a kid when this movie came out i certainly didn't gather all that you know as a kid watching it i just gathered like oh poor herman well and see and for me it was like oh poor herman and then i guess as a kid i thought oh well because it was part of the ghost thing that he's going to be okay or whatever and you find out even, and I didn't notice it until again, I watched it back this time. Herman's dead. Like even yeah. at the end of the movie, like, cause he's yeah. up the ghost. The angels. Yeah. At the end, I'm like, they fucking killed Herman. <laughs> Herman, Herman, Herman. Yeah. And, and you can see it visibly upsets Frank, the character. I, this is also one of those times where you start to see the veneer of his hardened exterior start to crack because even though he didn't meet Herman for a long period of time, he knew how much Herman meant to Claire. And he had talked to Herman when he was an alive person and now seeing him dead, which is something obviously a person in Frank Cross's position doesn't have to deal with. Yeah. And now he's got to. And well, I'm like, wow. Like, again, it's one of those things I didn't really think about a lot either till I was watching it for the show. And I was like, geez, man, there's a lot going on here. If you really sit and think about it. Well, and, he, and putting another spin on that, when he's yelling at Herman, he's yelling at her, at Herman, why didn't you stay with Claire? Oh, yeah. Claire would have taken care of you. And I think at some point, Frank is, yes, he's yelling at Herman, but he's also, I think, yelling at himself, saying, why didn't you stay with Claire? Look at this Freud-level shit. Telling going you. On right here. Like, yeah. man, I want to find the... I. I had it written down at one point, the writers of this show. Like, I want to interview these people now. I want these people on the show, and I want to talk to them for an hour about writing Scrooged. Because I think we're I think we're stumbling onto some real shit here. I think I think we are. Like we I mean, kinda like we did with Christmas Vacation. Cousin Eddie was the smartest one there. 
Because uh, was the shitter's full was yeah. the true words. Like, wow. Advancing forward the ghost of, of the Christmas future. Of course, we kind of alluded to that earlier when we talked about the physical drama, but then... Why are you showing me this stuff? I can't do anything bad. Why the hell did you bother to show me this stuff? James Stumper. No. Oh. Please don't let him burn me, Jimmy. Jimmy, don't let him burn me. Please don't let him burn me. I'm in there. Oh, God. Again, that's another scene that just really grabs you when, not so much when he's burning alive, but when he's standing there and he's trying to grab the coffin and he's trying to pull it away from the fire and he's screaming to his brother, like, you know, but nobody can see it. Don't let him burn me. Don't let him burn me. They're going to burn me. And you're just like, you just feel that, you, you that feeling of helplessness. Well, well, and that's the ultimate point of Christmas Future. Yeah, is to show you your mortality because that's actually one of the things alluded to by Lou Hayward is the thing that all men fear most is not, and I don't necessarily think every person is afraid of death. I think that they. There is a fundamental human, I am afraid of dying and not having been anything. And if Frank dies now, he dies as an alone, narcissistic asshole, which is not the way he wants to, that's not the impression he wants to leave on earth. And I don't know that the image of him in a coffin being buried and being put into the ground and becoming worm food, as Lou alluded to in the beginning of the movie. Yeah, it was. Um, I don't know that it would have had the same no mental aspect to it. It's not as visceral. You yes. need to see. But to see and then to feel and to hear him screaming about not wanting to be burnt, it just, I don't know, it, 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 it still kind of resonates with me. Well, and the beauty of it is, is obviously none of us, very few people have had severe, like third degree level burns, but we've all been near something hot. Like real hot, like you've opened up an oven door too fast, you know, something like we've yeah. all been around a campfire and the wind shifted. All of a sudden you got a good blast of heat. We've all felt that. So when you see his feet on fire, like there's that part of your brain that's like, oh, we know what that is. You know, like there's that caveman part of your brain <laughs> that just goes, no, fire bad. And like you don't want to be near it and you're seeing it. So again, I think you're right. I think if they had just done the funeral scene, yeah, it's not, you know, it's scary, but to think about your own feet being on fire. Yeah. Like it, it takes its toll. Yeah. I think wrapping up because we're kind of getting to the end of it. Uh, and I think this may be a, a portion that we talk quite a bit about. I don't know. Uh, potentially Grace's kid, Tom. Yes. Throughout the movie, the proverbial tiny Tim. Yes. So for those who haven't seen the movie, background is the kids, I think he's probably seven or eight-ish. He doesn't talk. He has not talked since his he's seen his father be killed five years ago. And she's taken him to numerous doctors. And, you know, there was kind of a one-liner about a doctor there about, you know, the specialist that cost 200 bucks, 200 bucks tell me that you don't talk. Like, I don't know that you don't talk. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. You know, you just kind of chuckle at that. But I was like, wow, they were complaining even in 1988 about this. huh? <laughs> the mental aspect of, of that is interesting. Yeah. So there's a variety of reasons. And, and again, I don't know all the medical conditions that 
cause us not to talk and there's a variety of them you're not sure which one it is for him you know is it actually a physical inability because of something is it just a mental lockup or is it he just isn't so i feel for the provider that had to see that kid because the mom wants an answer that honestly he may not have and and often i feel for me in primary care that there are far too many times i shouldn't say far too many but it feels like a lot where somebody wants some kind of concrete answer and i'm like i don't have it i'm gonna try and help you find it i know the direction we're gonna go in for treatment but i think gray's anatomy and all these other movies or shows have set up this false perception that providers are going to be able to look at you and within five minutes have a plan of care to treat everything under the sun. And I think the mom in that scene is showing that frustration that people feel every time they come to a doctor, we're going to have some kind of answer. Well, I think we all, I think we should have some type of answer. Even if that answer is, I don't know, that's the answer, but we're going to find out. Like, I, I think it needs to be a long a realistic line because I would never lie and tell my patient. I would tell them this is what I think it is. And this is what we're going to do to confirm it or rule it out, whatever the you know situation may be. And here's what we're going to do to start treatment. But there are times where I'm not hundred percent sure. And when it's a kid not talking and it could be a variety of afflictions, which was after trauma. So, I mean, you know, you clearly there's a mental health aspect to the, his mutism whether it was a dissociative disorder and just trying to, you know, I I couldn't even begin to speculate on, on what caused the, the mutism, but you see throughout the movie that he's very intelligent. Yes. Like you know, there's the scene where he fixes the game that none of his brothers or sisters could fix. I mean, it just, again, like I feel terrible for the mom because I can't imagine how frustrating that would be to be the parent of a kid that in every way is normal, but won't talk. And I think in today's time, 2020, with the expanded umbrella of autism, I almost wonder if they wouldn't consider him to be on the spectrum of some sort. I think that's a good start. And I think nowadays that would be the push. Here's the problem, though. At the end of the movie, he just comes forward and he's like, reminds Bill Murray of what you're supposed to say at the end of Scrooge, which is Tiny Tim says, God bless us, everyone. And of course, he says it perfect with no mispronunciation or anything right in front of the mother and everybody feels great. So I'm like, OK, so let's assume that they did say this kid's got Asperger's. Well, guess what? He doesn't. <laughs> he just didn't want to talk. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just it's it's an interesting. Yeah, the we talk lots about like, you know, mental trauma. ER nurses and things of that nature and us being able to put that into a little box and can begin to imagine being a two or three year old and seeing your your father killed. Well, and again, we're assuming an age. So, I mean, maybe he's just malnourished. I mean, he could be anywhere. We'll say eight to ten. Yeah. I'm just saying, I, like, you know, so that gives us that three to five year old range. Well, and that makes a difference because if he's a three year old, he may not even comprehend what he saw. But if he's getting into that five year old range, there's a much more likely chance that he understands at least to an extent what he just saw and and you know he's not able to mentally process it at that age i don't know that i can mentally process it at my age if i saw something 
that dramatic with like my dad. So yeah, that that is one of those. It's an it's a reoccurring character too throughout the movie. Is you see the mother struggling to raise her kids, and this one kid just keeps not talking, and it causes her grief. That of course Frank is not helping, but that is one of those reoccurring themes. And and honestly, I think it goes back to mental health. I, I you know I I think it goes back to something that we've said about this movie the entire time as great as this movie is man it's a real mind fuck i mean it is i mean if you break it down like wow there's a lot of mental health aspects to this yeah you know it it it, with frank being the narcissistic asshole that he is especially whenever they're, they're talking about the kid and you said you know he didn't realize how much grace was struggling with with this frank didn't even know that grace's husband had died and there's he a reference he was black for a year. <laughs> yeah, he's, the ghost of Christmas presents like, uh, she wore black for a year. He's like, oh, I just thought it was, you know, I just thought it was a fashion thing. I didn't realize it. So again, just completely oblivious to the narcissism of, of that. And of course, by the end of the movie, that all melts away, and he becomes the the happy go lucky. He becomes the character you want him to be. Thank you. That was uh, yeah. That you took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> like, oh, this is the guy I like. Which you know, I, I think there needs to be a, a nicer Frank. I just don't want the Frank that told those people to do their fucking job to go away either. I like that Frank too. You know, we didn't really talk much about Bobcat Goldway, but he really he does really good in this movie. Also, oh God, as uh, Loudermilk is his last name. Yeah, Elliot. Elliot, Elliot Loudermilk, yes. yes the only one willing to stand up to him, so he gets sacrificed and fired for it. And then goes on a drunken rampage because his wife leaves him. Um, he donates, well, he's having a bad day. So. Yeah, I mean, everything is going wrong for him, and then you know he donates blood, and then he passes out from donating so much blood. Uh, <laughs> he steals his coat. He steals his coat. He gets drunk. He comes to try to shoot Frank, which is about the time that Frank has his revelation that you know he's still alive and things are are going to be better. And of course, uh, Elliot then helps him out after some convincing and some raspberries on the stomach. Um, <laughs> which again made one of my favorite lines of the whole movie. Oh yeah, probably my second. Which I say all the time. People obviously don't get it, but I say it all the time. I don't hear any partying in that boat, Elliot. Great! You heard him partying! Now why wasn't I invited? Now that was just an innocent window, and you saw what I did to that. I don't even know who you're dealing with. Yeah, so Elliot's in the control booth because Frank doesn't want them to shut down the show because Frank kind of just hijacks the show to talk about the life lesson that he's learned. Um, And so Elliot's up there with the shotgun. Uh, The shotgun goes off, blows through the window. Yeah, I don't think you know who you're dealing with has been one of my all-time favorite lines. And nobody gets it, but it still makes me chuckle internally because I remember that scene where he accidentally shoots the shotgun through the window. And to play it off, he's like, did you see what I just did to an innocent window? Which just strikes me funny. The very fact you called a window innocent. Like, what the hell? Would the end? Was, is there a guilty window? So, but it... it Oh yes, the whole the whole scene leads back to him being in control because he's been drunk all day. So the movie from start to finish, though, even with all the stuff we said that makes us sound horrible, and I don't mean horrible and bad. I mean horrible as in, 
you know, a psychological thriller. Like it's not psycho. <laughs> it's I don't know. listening to this might ruin people's uh, interpretation of this movie. When they go back and watch it, they're gonna be like, Oh shit, yeah. You're like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, but I don't want it to ruin it. I want them to, to realize what's going on, which I think is so I think much it funnier. Heightens the movie. Yes. But- Gives it depth. A depth like the very first time you see her like the ghost of Christmas present and we keep talking about her because she does make a large chunk of the movie where she like and blows glitter on his face. But what it really does is is makes an X for her to punch. (laughs) But you realize what it's doing is it's moving the character along. So she's not knocking him out just to knock him out. She's knocking him out so that he can move forwards. And you're like, oh, I get it. And also, I think it's funny because no one's ever pushed him around. So the juxtaposition of this tiny girl being the one to finally push him around is just hilarious. It's just it just works. It works on every level. It does work on every level. And so wrapping up, I still think it's a great movie. I would still say, like, I would watch this over and over because it's just that good of a movie. And Bill Murray is that good of an actor. But and I'm sure you feel the same way. Like you said, this is one of your favorite, if not your favorite Christmas movie. Here's my question to you, Tom. And I didn't pose this earlier. Do you think there's a, a possibility that something like this could occur in real life? And I don't mean like the hallucinations and stuff like that, but I mean, do you think someone could have such a life-changing oh, experience yeah. that it completely changes their personality from a narcissistic asshole to this this wonderful person? Absolutely. 100%. I believe. Do I think it happens to every person, even if a person has an epiphany? No, but I 100% know that there are people out there that if you give them the right trigger, that they're going to change. Here's the thing, though, okay? Sometimes it's from good to bad, right? Sometimes there's a really great person, and life just has kicked him in the ding-ding one too many times, and... He's done. He is no longer Mr. Nice Guy. It's yeah, no less an epiphany. It's just yeah. not the one we want. What's the movie with Michael Douglas? Is it Walking Tall? No, uh, Falling Down. Falling Down, yes. Yes. That, that's one guy who's been kicked in the ding-ding one too many times. <laughs> he just wants a whammy burger. And again, you're going to have to just watch that if you want to know what that's about. But no, I, I think in real life, 100% that... I, and, and here, and I'm even willing to go a little further, I would say the vast majority, like over 90% of the human population is vulnerable to that condition. And the reason I say that is because I understand that if you grew up in Nepal or you grew up in Zaire or you grow up in California, you, you clearly are going to have a different perspective on life. But... I think the human animal at some basic level, our, our brain works the same way. And that if there is something that can change us, I, I think that there can in every culture and every society for the majority of people, I think that there is something that can change how you see or, or do things. I mean, again, I could be completely wrong on that, but I don't think America is unique in people having an epiphany you know, I mean, oh, I, I agree. And I was mainly just kind of trying to get discussion on that because, yeah, I mean, I do think that it certainly. Uh, well, again, happened. it goes back to what do you think would have to take place? 
I don't, I don't know. I really don't. And I I think I've talked about it on the show one time before. I saw a church in Germany. It's called Eder Oberstein. So you can, if if somebody out there actually wants to look it up. I mean, like I've seen it though in person. The guy had a life-changing event and carved a church out of the side of a mountain. So, I mean, even in, you know, the 1500s, people could, they didn't have to have Frank Cross, you know, like. Granted, it wasn't a very big church, but I guess if I was working by myself carving a church out of rock, I don't know how much I'd expect you to think I'm going to get out of this. And when I say carved it out, I mean, there is no furniture. He literally carved all of the rock away. So the pews are part of the mountain. Like, it's a pretty amazing sight to see. But he clearly had a life-changing event, and it made him think, I need to do something pretty magnificent. So he did it. So, yeah, I, I, I completely think human beings are capable. I just, I don't know that we always have the right trigger. Fair enough. Anything else that you'd like to add to this wonderful review of, medical <sighs> review of the movie Scrooged? Well, first, I think we kind of strayed off from strict medical review, so let's just put that out there. Nah. Second of, second of all, medical. If you have seen Scrooge, but it's been a long time, or you've never seen Scrooge, especially this time of year with Christmas, absolutely watch it. And when you hear this review, you're going to go, holy shit, that makes so much more sense now. So I highly, highly suggest it for everybody, um, especially those that have never seen it. You should watch it. It is a great movie. Might as well do our social media stuff here at the end because well, yeah, that's what we do. We get through Twitter, YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast websites, www.justsoundpodcast.com. Email admin at justsoundpodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check out our other shows that we have out. Buried Pleasures with Pollyanne, Amazing, and soon to be Nurse Papa with David. So make sure you check those out on all your podcast hosting devices. Tom. Ben. Tis the season. This will be coming out on Christmas or the day after Christmas. So we hope that y'all had a safe and socially distanced Christmas because we don't want to see another spike in COVID two weeks after Christmas. But uh, yeah. we're probably going to anyways. Probably so. But it's okay. It's, yeah. Well, the epiphany most people are going to be having right now is getting COVID apparently. So maybe it's a life changing. It's going to be for a roughly one to 7% of them. So just saying Touche. I mean, the deep stuff, 20% of you are going to have life-changing stuff, whether you like it or not. So there's the Scrooge time that we all know. <laughs> uh, on, uh, on that note of Scrooge Tom, have a great week. Hey, everybody, stay safe out there and wear your damn mask. Wash your damn hands. <laughs> stay the damn way from each other. Damn it, that didn't work as well. So- <laughs> stay the damn way from each other, exactly. And I want to give a big special thank you to Kevin McLeod over at filmmusic.io for the use of the Royalty 3 music tonight. If you have a project and you need music, go check out filmmusic.io. But swearing just to pass the time Lately I see why I am alone I caught some road bridge and I thought of you And all the many times you say I should have known Talk a